we're in a, 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 I suppose a unique, well, maybe not unique, but it's unique for us, um, in our, our family life, um, where we are moved into a house, but we're waiting for another house. And so we have boxes that are all packed. We have things that we've shoved in cupboards and to top it all off, we've then got things and boxes that are at other people's homes as well. And so every now and again, there'll be something going, we, we go looking for something. So last, yesterday, uh, my son Noah wanted to start a jigsaw puzzle. And we've got one of those jigsaw puzzle, um, rolls that you sort of roll it out and you can roll it up and get it out of the way. So it's not taking up the whole table, um, while you try and eat. The problem is, as we started to look, we checked that cupboard, we checked this cupboard. It could be in the shed behind all that gear. It could be at this home. It could be in this home. It could be, it could be lost. Like it could be truly lost and not in any of those locations at all. Uh, and, and that, that happens is that like you, the things that like that you are looking for, if you can't find them, it, they are by definition lost. And, and most of us know what it's like to like lose someone or or lose something that's of value to us. Anyone ever lost a child for a period of time? Like my my wife and probably to myself to a lesser extent, are still traumatized by one time Noah went missing at a markets. He walked a different direction to us as we we're walking along this way and got to the other side of the of, of I suppose a couple and couldn't get back to find us. And so we're panicked everywhere and looking everywhere. And you kind of, you go, this is lost. This is valuable to me. Um, sometimes we, we might lose our wallet or our mobile phone. Anyone ever lost a remote? Um, in, now, this is an American sort of um, uh, article. And so they did a survey. They said the average American spends two and a half days each year looking for lost items. And to make it even worse, collectively, it costs U.S. households $2.7 billion a year in replacement costs for things that are lost. And that was just Donald Trump. <laughs> nah. Um, but, but the thing is, when you think about it, that's a lot of things that have been lost and been replaced because we can't find it again. And, and the thing is, there's even a market now for people that can actually find their lost things so you can sort of go, I lose my things, so I'm going to put something on that so that I can find it later. So my watch helps me find my phone. My phone helps me find my keys and my wallet. Um, but as my parents used to say, like, lucky your head screwed on straight because you'd lose that as well. Like, there's nothing to find that again. The thing about we, we lose that one sock and we look for it and I, I guarantee that, yeah, we, we've lo- looked for a lot of things around our homes. And even worse, when we send our kids to find stuff in their room, even if their room is spotless, they walk in and go, I can't see it and they can't find it. It's even worse if their room is messy because you'll go in and go, you can't find it either. And so there are a lot of things that are lost in our world, we, we, we get a better, like, who can remember the old Refidex when you went to Brisbane? Like, you had one of those and you sort of basically looked up a map and you'd have to have one person navigating as you come along and then, oh, we've got to turn the page and get on, keep going where you're going. So, um, whereas these days you've got a GPS, but the thing is, if you get in the middle of somewhere where the GPS is not working, 
again, you, you're still in that position where you'll find yourself not knowing where you are, which is by definition being lost. Um, well, Jesus takes his word lost and he applies it to describe those who are not in relationship with him. And the word lost he uses is defined in a much stronger way in the original language of the Bible than our definition of lost today. It actually means the state of being ruined. It means utterly destroyed, totally decimated. Now, (laughs) straight away, as I think about that definition, and I think about my friends who are lost, people, my family that I have that are lost, people in my neighborhood who are lost. Lost sounds so nice compared to a state of being ruined or utterly destroyed or totally decimated. Hold that thought because we're going to come circle back to that. Um, the same word is found in John 3.16. For, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. It's the same word as lost there, to be wasted away, but have eternal life. Lost is a good word to describe those who don't know Jesus. The Bible actually refers to those who don't know Jesus elsewhere in Scripture as being hostile to God. We see that in Romans 8.7, being separated from him, having no hope. Uh, Ephesians 2.12, and being in the dominion of darkness, Colossians 1.13. The thing is, like when you are in physical darkness, it's disorienting at best. It's, it can be like totally imprisoning at other times. When you don't know where you're meant to go because everything is black, you might sort of sort of find your way around and find the furniture, find the furniture with your feet. That's what your feet were designed for, to find furniture in the dark. But the thing is, it's, it's like at times when we've visited other people's places and their children will wake up when they were younger, wake up in the dark and they're totally disoriented. They don't know how to get to us because there's no light. For those who are spiritually in the domain of darkness, they cannot find their way out. As much as we, we, we live in a world, you sort of say, you can do this, you can, you, we sort of that self-motivation that you get up and get going and you can, you can fix it, you can do it. Those who find themselves in spiritual darkness have no way of escaping them. What, what we are saying is that when we understand people are lost that way, we also then understand God's motivation when he pursues us. Now, I'm just going to discount any of those who are worried that God is chasing them down. Okay, that's a different feeling altogether in a sense of I've done something wrong and I'm running. I remember a, a friend of mine who uh, he was um, at my church in Brisbane and he told me a story of when he was a child and something happened. His dad had done something to upset him. Now, he's probably a teenager and the dad had probably done the right thing. Anyway, he was furious about it. So basically, he, 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 he keyed it all up. He got his bike ready uh, right near the front of the house. He then actually sort of called his dad out, said a few choice words that we won't be saying this morning, and then jumped on his bike. Even though he had his bike there and he was pedaling hard, the dad was so angry that he started chasing. And for a moment, he thought he was riding his bike and going, my dad is going to catch me. 
I am done for. I'm going to be with Jesus right now. That's the thought that was going through his head. And eventually he got far enough ahead that the dad ran out of puff. I'm not sure what Tommy came home that day, but he was worried that his dad was chasing him down. That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about a God that goes into the lost places and finds the lost people in our world. And he does it with such passion. God wants to pursue those people that are perishing, who are wasting their lives away, who are in a state of being ruined and decimated by the enemy, those who are lost. This is who God pursues. And and this is exactly why um, Jesus tells these parables to a a bunch of of religious leaders gathered around him. And that's where Luke 15 is, is sort of set. Jesus is talking to these religious leaders who their job was to bring hope and salvation to the people, and they had failed in doing that. They had set the bar impossibly high. And so Jesus is talking this, and, and this is the context. And Jesus is blowing up their idea of what they think they know about God. In Luke 15, 1 to 3, we see, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to, to hear him. Now straight away we see a difference here between Jesus and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The sinners actually were attracted to Jesus. They wanted to come and hear him. They felt welcome. They felt cared about. They felt acknowledged. He did not pass judgment or look down on them. He spoke to them in a way that they could understand. Just, and, and so we, we need to see that as they gathered in doing this. Because we pick up, and, and then the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told them this parable. So basically, the Pharisees are watching Jesus attract the unwanted, the lost, those who are decimated. Jesus is attracting those people. And the Pharisees are sort of shaking their head and tut, tut, tut. And so Jesus decided to tell them a story. Now, never in a million years did the religious leaders view God as the God that pursued those who were lost, as a God who sought after those who were not seeking him. Um, William Barclay, who's a Bible commentator, said, No Pharisee had ever dreamed of God like that. A great Jewish scholar had admitted that this is the one absolutely new thing which Jesus taught about God, that he actually searched for us. A Jew might have agreed that those who came crawling home to God in self-abasement and prayed for pity might find it, but he would never have conceived of a God who went out to search for sinners. This was a brand new idea for the Jews. And I think it's an idea that we too quickly forget as well. So basically in chapter 15, um, Luke records three stories that Jesus told. The first is a lost sheep. And basically one sheep had gone lost. And I've it always just surprises me this, like Jesus is watching 99 and one goes missing. Now, if 40 had went missing, if 50 had went missing, if 60 went missing, okay, I've got a smaller group, I need to go find them, but one. I said, it's a good chance he's already been taken by a wolf or something else. I'm not going to find him. I'm going to sort of, sort of cut my losses and let it go. Now, Imagine we did that in the same way in the, in the world that we live in. 
We look at our lost friends. We look at our, our people in our lives that are, are decimated by the world. And all of a sudden, we go, do you know what? I've still got heaps on this side. I'm just going to cut my losses and let that one go. What, what number do we stop cutting our losses? At 10, 20, 30? Some of us today would go, do you know what? I've shared with one out of a hundred of my friends, I'm doing pretty good. And so what we need to get to is this idea that that one was so valuable to the shepherd. And, and then, then he pursued him and found that sheep and, and restored. And, and do you know what that sheep represents? It represents us, me and you. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. As much as I do not like the, the description of sheep when it comes to talking about myself, if I include myself in the world and I look at the world as being led one way or the other so easily, we are sheep. Like we are. Um, and, and the thing is, we, we are <coughs> easily confused, easily deceived, easily led on a path, easily sort of adopting ideas and cultures that are not biblical in any way and so we need the one true shepherd to find us and to lead us in the the right way and so what we have here is we have jesus as the good shepherd uh, as we see in john 10 basically searching after the sheep the good shepherd left the 99 to find that valuable one and when he finds it there is great celebrating and rejoicing same with the parable of the lost coin the coin is of great value. It re- represented a day's worth of wages. And so this woman puts everything on hold until she can find this coin. Talk about pursuit. She lights a lamp, sweeps a house, seeks diligently. Nothing gets on her agenda until what is lost is found. And once she finds it, once it's tracked down, once the pursuit is over, what follows? Celebration and rejoicing. And then we get to the third parable, which Mick read for us this morning, the parable of the lost son. Now, most of us are aware of that. I've heard that story in different ways, and, and we, we sort of take value in it and, 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 and I suppose feel like we understand it. One of the things we do need to realize is, is that in the time of the, of the Bible, in, the, in that context, when the son asked for that money, it was the equivalent of saying, you are dead to me. Because it was only at the father's physical death that the son would have received his inheritance. Now, think about that for a second. If someone you care about and you thought cared about you came up to you and goes, I want nothing to do with you anymore. Give me what I'm owed. I think my brain would go into that ungodly part of my life and I would want to give them what they're owed. It wouldn't be a pleasant thought. I'm going, well, a boot in the backside is probably, like, that's the best you're going to get. Like, there could be worse coming. But the father actually gave him the money and the son went off and lived his life and all of a sudden found himself in a position where he was now impoverished. The friends he bought with his wealth are now gone. The food that he enjoyed was now gone. And, and it was he wasn't looking at the roast pork in front of him. He was looking at the food the roast pork was going to eat. That, that's how desperate he was. And so 
he gets into the point that he is lost. He is decimated. He is in a position where, like, he is a Jewish man feeding pigs. Now, imagine the context. Remember the context? He's talking to the Pharisees here and trying to get them to the point of understanding how lost this guy is. This is a Jewish man feeding animals that are, are declared unclean. The, the Pharisees would have been listening and going, wow, this guy was desperate. This guy was lost. He was desperate and he had no decent food to eat. And, and got to the point where all of a sudden, he, as he was doing this, he goes, do you know what? My servants or my father's servants, my father's employees live better than this. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son, but maybe I can get a job with my dad. Maybe I can call him boss rather than father. And so he, he, he probably workshops it a bit in his brain going, what am I going to say? Will my father take me back? Will he send me away? Will he, he, I said he was basically dead to me. Will he act like that and just say, I'm dead to him? And so all this stuff is going through his head and he, he prepares his speech and he says, I have sinned. I'm not worthy. Can you give me a job? Is pretty much the, the, the guts of it. And, and while he was a long way off, and this is interesting as well, his father saw him. Now, how do you see things that are a long way off? You're looking for them. Like if you're driving somewhere, like you're driving to Brisbane, and all of a sudden you, you see that Brisbane sign coming up or Brisbane 50 kilometers and you go, oh, I'm almost there. You're looking for that. Like if you're driving home and, 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 and like I know when I drive home to my, my parents' place and, and I drive up that street, I'm, I, I, I look down the street and go, that's my parents' house down there. I'm almost there. You're looking for it. And the father must have been looking for it. Now, how how do you think he would have seen his coming? Was he out there just on that one day and, oh, that's my son. Oh, I've forgotten about him. He must have been dead. He's dead to me and, oh, I see him coming now. Now, what makes sense is that the father was out there every day. I don't know, maybe for a time each day and he was looking for his son to return. He wanted his son that was lost to come home. And when he saw his son, he started to run. Now, again, this, I, I had been a pastor for a number of years before I, I fully understood this. I thought, oh, the father was happy to see him and, and running was sort of a normal practice. But it was undignified for a Jewish man to run anywhere. It made him look hurried. It made him look unorganized. It made him look undignified. And so Jewish men would not sort of lower themselves to run. Like children can run, men just walk everywhere. And so if you want to get out of being an athlete, be a Jewish man. Like that's the way to go. But, but the thing is, the father's first response is not what culture thinks of him, is not what I suppose he will look like to people around him. I see my son and I am passionately wanting to be with him. Now, the son does not run. Now, I can imagine why, because he's thinking about that, like that story at the beginning where the father is chasing me down. 
this father I've come back to beg uh, for a little bit of mercy to, to employ me is now running towards me. And if, if it's a long distance, he can't see his facial expression just yet. So he may stand still for a bit. Dad's running over here. Okay, um, he's getting closer. Do I just, maybe, maybe I need to start running too. I don't, I don't know what was going through his head. But the son doesn't run. The father approaches him and basically falls upon him and kisses him. The son tried to get his words out. Father, like, I'm so sorry. I've done wrong. I'm, I'm unworthy to be your son. And, and, and basically, the way I read this passage is that the father, while the son's talking about this, the father turns around and, hey, guys, can you guys come here? He kind of is ignoring this speech. I don't know how far the son got through this speech. Because, again, in the Bible, it's like two or three verses. I reckon the speech would have been considerable. He was going to be sort of begging for the mercy of his father. He would have had little anecdotes to share and, and, and how hard it was for him and how wrong he was. He had it all lined up and he started maybe sort of like with as much emotion as he can. And the father ignored him. He called the other servants here and basically said, look, my son who was dead to me has now returned. What was lost is now found. Let's have a celebration because my son is restored. At that point in time, the son all of a sudden realizes, um, I'm going to stop my speech right now. What has dad actually said to me? I'm a son again. I'm, I'm not, I'm not rejected. I'm not sort of put down as a servant. I'm restored. All of a sudden, the son who was lost is being found. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon called Many Kisses from Returning Sinners. And he preached an entire sermon on that small phrase and kissed him. He writes, see the contrast. There is a son scarcely daring to think of embracing his father, yet his father has scarcely seen him before he has fallen on his neck. The condescension of God towards penitent sinners is very great. He seems to stoop from his throne of glory to fall upon the neck of a repentant sinner. God on the neck of a repentant sinner. What a wonderful picture. A picture of God not only running towards a wayward and lost son, but embracing him. And God is still running and pursuing the lost today. Out of these, these three parables that Jesus shared in Luke 15, this is what we need to understand, that God pursues the lost. God pursues the lost. Like when we open up that Bible, that is the story that we find, that God pursues the lost. But after, after looking more closely at the, uh, Luke 15, we need to add a few more words to that phrase because God does not just pursue the lost, God pursues the one that is lost. In the first story, he doesn't go off and find like five sheep or ten sheep. He goes off and finds one. The woman had lost one coin. The father had lost one son. And when we look at this word one in these parables, it's highlighted over and over again. And this is what I call the value of one. 
one person is valuable to God. One child is valuable to God. One youth is valuable to God. One owl is valuable to God. It doesn't matter where we fall, whether we're male or female. It doesn't matter if we're from one country or another country. God actually sees the value in every person. He sees the value in that one. The father, while he had two sons, it was the one who was, that was lost in a far country that he grieved after and ran towards. It's showing the infinite value of one. You see this value over and over again in these stories where Jesus is, is, is demonstrating that, that those one people, those, that, that, that person in that situation, that person who is facing this challenge, this person who is depressed, this person who is sort of in a, in a, a horrible family situation, this person who is going through this trial that seems so unique to them, they are all valuable to God. You can't read these parables without the value of the loss coming off the page. And the clear teaching of Jesus that here is that here is the lost, those outside of relationship with him. Everyone that is lost is of value to Jesus. And this is why he went on that ultimate search and rescue mission, leaving the confines of heaven and coming to earth. In his own word, he states the mission of his life. And we see this in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek, to look for, to earnestly find and save the lost. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus came to earth and lived the perfect life and died for me and for you. It was the ultimate way God would show how he pursues us. And it was the ultimate way God would show the lost how much they are valued and how much he loves them. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever thought how that verse would play out in the reality of your life? Not, not just someone who... Like sinners is such a spiritual thing. We kind of go, oh, the sinners. Yeah, God loves those sinners. But what it would look like if we had someone in our life that we actually showed love to while they were effectively our enemy. And what that would look like in our life. Is it a boss that bullies you? It, is it a, a situation at school where you are sort of threatened? Is it someone who's come into your, your house and, and stolen valuable things and then comes back the next day and God says, love them with great mercy and grace? Well, what, what would that look like in our life in a practical way? Well, let's just step away from this, the super spiritual over here and go, how would this play out? Because I, I think until we start doing that, we don't actually understand how much God sacrificed for this to become a reality. We just go, oh yeah, God does those kind of things. What a big deal. Well, no, it's a huge deal. We get offended by stuff that doesn't exist in our lives, don't we? There'll be something, someone cuts me off in traffic and it's like, well, they didn't really cut me off. They just didn't see me. They don't actually think about me at all. And we kind of think about it all day. We think about, oh, the government's done this to me and we get upset by, by that and it's like, well, the government wasn't even thinking about you individually. However, when God said, God shows his love for us, your name 
and your face was on his mind. He actually knew exactly what he was doing. I am dying for you and I am dying for you. I am dying for you and I know you may not accept it, but I love you so much, I want to give you that opportunity. And see, with this, what we've got to realize is that we can't buy into the idea that we don't matter, that our lives aren't worth anything, unless unless we put like sort of sort of descriptors on it. Oh, I'm only worth something if I've got a great job. I'm only worth something if I've got if I'm popular. I'm only I'm only worth something if if I can define myself in a better way. Well, most of the lost, those who are decimated by the world, are at times feeling like there's nothing good about them. Well, God loves them at that point in time. We, we need to make sure we don't listen to the enemy telling you that your life is hopeless or meaningless and that you don't have value. You do matter and, you have, and have since before you were born. Psalm 139 uh, verses 16 to 18 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book um, um, were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would account them, they were more than the sand. So basically, while you were still cells growing in your mother's body, God said there is value there. That that brings a whole other issue that's in our world at the moment. But God basically sees value even before your birth. God sees value in all the things that you do. And the thing is, okay, not to be like unsensitive, but babies, other than the cuteness factor, they don't really do too much for you in those first few years. Like um, they often bring more difficulty. Like not not picking on Esther, but she's the youngest one here. I'm going... I'm sure, like, she's not getting up and doing dinner any night soon. I'm, I'm, she may try and burn the house down or something like that, but, but the thing is, while, while, while they're little, they don't, they don't add a lot of value. So where does the value come from? Because God says you're valuable to me. God says you're valuable to me. Now, if you are here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus... Or maybe your relationship is not what it should be. Maybe you are feeling more than a little lost. And you are here today knowing what you need to know that today God is pursuing you. God is pursuing you so that you can know his love and so that you can surrender into his plan for your life. You, you, we need to give up on going our own way. We need to give up on doing our own thing. We need to give up on running away from God and let ourselves be caught by the loving arms of God because you can't outrun the God who pursues us. Now, I, I want to I encourage us as a church. And again, this... This is an idea that needs to become a practice in our lives. Is that if the lost are valuable to God, okay, should they be valuable to us? Okay, some of you don't seem too convinced by that. I'm going, I'm getting towards the end of my message. I can start again so we can... So should the lost be valuable to you? 
Why should they be valuable to you? Okay, yep, yeah, okay. Well, I'm, 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 we're, I'm happy we're going to keep going forward, not going back to the start. The thing is, we need to realize that if, if the lost are valuable to God and, the, and, the, and that one is valued, then what is the practice that we're going to do to show that is a real thing in our lives? Oh yeah, I'm going to open up the floor for suggestions. How can you show that the lost are valuable in your life? Preached was reach, witness, help, get alongside them. What was another one up the back? Give, give, give to them. Like some, some people, I, I, there's an old song I used to listen to when I was a little bit young. I said, don't tell them that Jesus loves them until you're ready to love them too. And I think often like we'll go, yep, yeah, I'm praying for you while you are out on the street and you are freezing cold. I'll pray for you. I'll pray the sun comes out. That's God's business, not mine. See you later. No, no, no. Sometimes we've got to put ourselves out there and say, hey, you're valuable to God and you're valuable to me and I'm going to do what I can to show that. Okay, what, what things do we have running around our church? Kids or that, yeah, kids, like, think organizationally. What, what, what do we do? What did Jimmy talk about this morning? Ministries around the church. So what can you do with, if you're coming along to an event that might be targeted just to you? So the owls are for the not so young. We have the youth for the young. We have kids club for the even younger. We have the men's and women's stuff. What can you do in that? Invite someone. Now, again, it's got to move from an idea because, again, if we get to flow into a head saying, do you know what? That person at work, the person in my street, the person in my family is valuable to God and they are lost at the moment. They are living in a decimated way. What can I do to do that? Well, the step is maybe I invite them into something that they can be involved in hearing about the love of God. And it may not happen in that one thing. I think sometimes we think that, oh, I'm going to invite someone to one event. Sky's going to open up. Light's going to shine through much like it did for Saul. They're going to realize the error of their ways. They're going to come to God and we're going to go, oh, God, you get the glory, but I'm just patting myself on the back. I did a good thing. And, and then they do something like, oh, no, I can't make it this week. God, I tried. Oh, what, what more can I do? Invite them next time. Invite them out for coffee. Have something impromptu to do. Maybe come up with that question. Hey, what do you think about God? If they are valuable to us, I think, and, and we understand that in its fullness, I think our actions need to be a bit louder in how we come across. And, and this is one of those things that I've been an idea that sort of got planted in my life when I was, when I, when I was a teenager, that there are people in my life that no one else will reach but me. And the problem is we're waiting for someone else to swoop into our life, to talk to that person that we care about, the person that we see as valuable, and to, to have that conversation and lead them to Christ. probably won't happen and we will watch their lives go by and our lives go by and we're going god who are you sending in to talk to that person meanwhile god is sort of 
doing this, going, it's you. The thing is, you don't want to wait for God to use this one. Okay, like I, it's not good to be on the other side of that one when God's sort of going, I've tried every other way to get you to go do this. The boot's coming out now. But that's the thing, like if God is impressing upon your heart that there's someone, and it may, it may be the long haul. It might be 10 years of being their friend and loving on them and talking to them and hearing their issues and, and building up a trust so that you have an opportunity to share about the love of Christ. Are you willing to invest in someone that long? Are you willing to pray for them that long? I I think if we truly understood the value that people have with God and we want to be like God, I think like the Grinch at Christmas time, our heart would grow larger for the mission of God. We have a God who's always pursuing, but he's put us in the relay as well. And that's the challenge I want to leave you today. Like, if you are needing the God to find you, stop running. God is going to find you. Open yourself up to him. But if God has found you, if God has your heart, help him pursue others. Put the value you have in those around us into practical needs to see God do miraculous things. Let's just pray. Lord, I thank you that you have you have found us, that you are a God who has realized that there is a need in our life that we cannot um, fulfill in any different way except for you. And I thank you that you have sent your son out of heaven to pay a price so that we could be found by the good shepherd. I thank you that you value us, that we have importance to you. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand that in our lives as we seek to pursue others alongside you, to see them come, to know the fullness of who you are and the love you have for them. Lord, I I pray that you would challenge us this week to actually reach out to those around us and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be obedient to the call that you place on our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.